The Apostle Paul has different letters to the churches and individuals. He often has a pattern that he follows where he starts out the first half of the letter dealing with doctrine and then the last half of the book dealing with practice, how we put that doctrine to work. And it's a logical format because the, the doctrine is the foundation for the practice. The truths that we believe are the reasons why we do the things that we do. I read a comment again from somebody here just recently that said what you believe about God is the most important thing about you because that's what, that's what sets the course of your life. That's what will govern your behaviors and your attitudes and actions in your life. Well, as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, we're entering just entering the, the last part of that pattern. The Apostle Paul has been laying the foundation of, of being in Christ, and then now he's going to turn and say, now how should we live in Christ? In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What I'd like to do is is go through our statement of faith. The one that we're looking at today is the Godhead. As we look at the Godhead, it says, we believe in one triune God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal in being, co-identical in nature, co-equal in power and glory and having the same attributes and perfections. If you look throughout our society, you find different religious groups, different cults that get this one distorted a little bit if you look into like Mormonism. Mormonism is, would exercise more of what you'd call a, a tritheism. In other words, a kind of three different gods as they look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They don't recognize them as, as being one God. On the other hand, if you look at like the Jehovah's Witness, uh, they go the other realm and they deny the deity of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. And so they look at uh, the Holy Spirit as being more of an agent or a power of God and not a person within the Godhead and Christ as being just the Son of God, but not God in the flesh, God himself. Well, we believe in what we call the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. The concept is not even explicitly taught, but it definitely is uh, indicated as we look throughout Scripture. It is definitely a biblical view of God. As we look at uh, the word Trinity, it means, as you break it down, it means Try being three and then unity. So, in other words, three in one. Now, I'll warn you right up front, this is not a... This is not a doctrine that's easy to understand. We don't believe it because we understand it. In fact, we don't understand it. We don't understand exactly how it works. We can see some things about how it works. We can see Jesus praying to the Father in the garden. We know that God sent forth His Son into the world, and then the Holy Spirit comes out from the Father and the Son. We can see a lot of things about the Trinity, but He's an infinite God, and He's beyond our finite ability to understand in some ways, and this is one of those ways. We've tried to illustrate it over the years. Sometimes people have tried to illustrate it maybe with a, like an egg. The egg has three parts, the, the, the yolk, the white, and the shell, but it's just one egg. And um, But you know what? Every one of the illustrations that anybody has ever come up with has fallen short in one aspect because in where we do have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they are one God, it's it's more than that. Each, each person of the Godhead is completely God. They're not just a part of God. They are God. We can see the truths coming out from the Scripture, but trying to find a, an earthly example or illustration of that truth is beyond our reach. 
preach. Then how, how do we know that it to be true? I, I remember one time I was in an interesting situation. I was I was at my grandparents' house. My grandparents were Mormons. We were going to leave a little bit later that day. And I went out to the van and I was checking to make sure that we were ready to take off on our trip, that the vehicle was all ready. And when I was out there, some guys were walking through the neighborhood and they stopped to talk to me and they were Jehovah's Witnesses. So I was at a Mormon's house talking to a Jehovah's Witness about Jesus. And uh, so it was kind of an interesting situation. They wanted to talk about the kingdom, the kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. Anyway, they said, we want to talk to you about the kingdom. And I said, well, all right, but here's the rub. The most important thing in any kingdom is the king. I said, and you and I have a fundamental disagreement on who the king is because I believe that he's God and you don't. And they started talking to me about that and we started talking about why I believe that he's God and and they were telling me about why they don't believe that he's God. And and I came up to a point where they were saying, so this Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in there, but they're just one God. But even though they're three gods, I said, no, they're not three gods. They're one God. Just one God. Three persons within the Godhead. And they're like, how can you understand that? I said, I can't. I said, don't understand it. I just believe it. And one of them kind of looked at the other one and kind of laughed. And I said, why, why are you laughing? And then he kind of felt bad and stood straightened up a little bit. I said, I said why, why, why were you laughing? You laughed. And I said, is it because I believe something that I don't understand? And they said, well, yeah. I said, well, do you believe that space goes on forever? I said, yeah. I said, can you understand that? Can you really get your mind around that? I mean, it kind of has to, right? So if it stops, something else has to start. So something has to go on forever. You can't get your mind quite around that, can you? How about time? No beginning or end to time? How, how is time eternal? It just keeps on numbers. Well, I don't know what the biggest number is, but back I remember a zillion when I was a kid, we always said. When my kids got older, it was like a Googleplex or something like that. And I don't even know what it is today. What's the biggest number? There is no biggest number. Why? Because you just say Googleplex and one, two, three. It just keeps going. I said, but boy, wrapping your mind around those kind of things is difficult, isn't it? You want to know why? Because those are infinite things, right? We're, ta- we're talking about a we're talking about an infinite God, but we're finite beings. We exist in four dimensions: height, width, depth, and time. But we're dealing with an infinite, eternal being that we're trying to get our minds around, trying to understand. And these things about Him are absolutely true. So the Trinity, Triunity, three in one. It's not a word that's found in the Bible. If you remember when we were studying end times events, we talked about the the rapture. And people say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's true. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. The rapture just means to be caught up. And the, the phrase caught up is in the Bible. And so it's, it's describing that phrase. Some of the things that, that we label, we give things labeled to help us better understand the Word of God. Just because the Word's not in the Bible doesn't mean it's not a true concept, a biblical concept. And that's what we're going to see with Trinity this morning. If you look up Trinity in the Bible, go on BibleGateway.com, punch in Trinity, it won't come up. But the concept is throughout the Bible. And that's what, as we look at it today, we're going to see that in several different things. First of all, we have the evidence of oneness. And this, we don't get a lot of argument with this. With each of these things, I'm only going to give you a couple of verses. There are plenty more for each of, each of the subjects that we cover, each of the, the truths that we cover, but we don't have time to read through all of them. How do we know there's a trinity? Because we see uh, evidence or clear scriptural teaching that on the oneness of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, as God's giving His command through Moses to Israel, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he's just, he's given them the Ten Commandments at this point. He's already reviewed those with him. And what did the commandments start with? You'll have no other gods before me. You will not worship any other gods and make any graven image of other gods. None of that. Why? Because God is one. That was a big part of the difference between Israel and all the peoples around them. All the other societies were polytheistic societies worshiping multiple gods. 
God says, I am one. And so God definitely emphasizes that there is only one God. New Testament does the same thing. We see it inferred uh, all throughout the, the New Testament. One example of that would be in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where it says there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's only one God. Other places in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, like when they're dealing with eating food that was offered as sacrifices to other gods, he says, now we know that there aren't any other gods. In other words, yes, there are people do worship other gods that they've made up, but when you look at what really exists, there really aren't any other gods. There is only this one God, and He alone is God. And so the Bible insists that God is in a oneness of God, that there is only one God. However, there is evidence, as we look in the Bible, of three persons within the Godhead. And I don't really know if, as you read through the Bible, I don't really see how you can uh, see it any other way, because there's a lot of questions that got to be answered if you don't recognize this fact. We see it right off the bat at the beginning of the book of Genesis, we see examples of this, or we see this inferred in the in the passages, partly through a plural language dealing with God. You realize in the in the Old Testament, it's it's a little bit more masked, it's a little bit more hidden. The New Testament, it becomes very much more clear. But as we start in the Old Testament, we look through right off the bat, we see glimpses that that God is is more than just one in person. For example, well, one thing is his his title, his name, Elohim. The Hebrew word Elohim for God is a plural word. Now, some people have said, and there is a possibility of this, sometimes in, uh, back in the day, they used to use what they called a majestic plural. In other words, uh, kings and stuff like that would be referred to or referred to themselves in a, in a plural, with plural terminology. And it was just to kind of show majesty. And so there is something called a majestic plural that somebody is saying, well, it's not really emphasizing uh, more than one. Even though it's in a plural form, it's, it's really emphasizing power, majesty, strength. But the problem with that is we do see that when you get up to like Alexander the Great and different leaders, and we see it in the Greek language, but we have not found any examples of that in the Hebrew language or back in the time period that this was written, back in Moses' day. That seems to have been a later thing and in the Greek language, not in the Hebrew language. And so I don't know that that really answers the use of a plural words. The name of God, Elohim, is plural, but not only that, but when we look in the, in, in the scriptures, we see him using pronouns and verbs in the plural as he describes his actions as well. For example, in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, using plural pronouns to describe himself. We also see it in chapter 3, in verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us knowing both good and evil. In Genesis 11, when he's dealing with the Tower of Babel, it says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. You know, some people have argued that, well, the let us, so maybe that's dealing with, he's talking, he's talking to the angels, let us, let us go down or let us. But the problem is, the angels, the Bible's pretty clear, the angels didn't create anything. It was only God that created. And God created through who? When you look to the, get to the New Testament, he created everything in and through Jesus Christ, through the Son. So this has to be referring to the Father and the Son being involved in the work of creation. Isaiah chapter 6, we see the same thing when uh, God calls Isaiah and he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? There's several times that God uses a plural pronoun when he's referring to himself, which shows a plurality of persons. Notice in this verse, in Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, what you're going to see here is that there's places in the Bible where God is talking, or maybe it's talking about God, but then it refers to somebody else as God. And that's what we see when we get to Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. 
It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Uh, The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, when you look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, that verse is quoted and ascribed to Christ. So it's saying that the first part of the passage is dealing with Christ, and it refers to Christ as God. But then a little bit later in the passage it says, but God, your God, talking about the Father. Jesus brought these things up to the Pharisees. Who is he talking to? When he talks about God, your God, who is he talking to? Who is he calling God there? He's pointing out to the Pharisees that he's God. In Psalm 110, in verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Talking about, again, about the Father talking to the Son. There's another thing that we see through the Old Testament that's really hard to answer for if you don't have a trinity. And that is the angel of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this person that shows up to talk to Abraham at one time when he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Shows up at different occasions and is referred to as the angel of the Lord. But then even just a little bit farther in some of the same conversations, it refers to him as God. And you say, well, who's who's this angel of the Lord? And in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2, when Moses... Before the burning bush, we get to see an example of it. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. But then you go on down farther in it. The angel of the Lord is who? It's God. It's God. It's the Lord. Repeatedly refers to, it, to him as God. The best that we can tell is that the angel of the Lord, as you go through, the angel of the Lord is probably, it is more than likely, pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. It's the Son of God being asked active in the creation. And so we begin to see evidence that in God, in though the, the Bible's clear that he is one, that within that oneness, there's a relationship, there's a plurality of a person within that Godhead. Now, as we look through that, we see it emphasized clearly in, in three different ways. And that's just emphasizing that the Father is God, the Son is God, Holy Spirit is God. Now, again, I'm, there's multiple of these passages. We're just going to go through probably like one of them with each one. The first thing we see is that there's evidence that the Father is God. And this, this is through the Bible, you don't have to go very far to, to prove this. Is this from the beginning to the end of the Bible? It's, it's, it's all throughout it. The example that I picked is, is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, which says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. So you actually get to see the whole Trinity working here. For the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. But the point is, it's just plainly referring to God the Father as God. There's Nobody really argues this against this one. God is God. But then, secondly, we also see that Jesus is God. Through many, there's many different things. We see it in John chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't get much more of a blunt, bold statement than that. The Jehovah's Witnesses, in order to get around this, say, Well, the Greek language, it really should have an A in front of it, an A God. Well, it's not true. There is no article there in the Greek language. And in fact, if you were to take the wording there and put A in front of it, it would be the only place in the whole New Testament where they translate it that way. Not only that, but it doesn't work. Uh, as I've pointed out to uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in the past, because they say, well, it really it should say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And I point out to them, you know what, that doesn't work. Because if you take the Jehovah's Witnesses theme statement back in Isaiah 43, I think it's verse 12 and 13. It says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord. And then it goes on to say, before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I alone am the Lord. And uh, there is no other God and there will never be another one formed. So if you use that with John 1.1 and you point that out to him, you say, your theme verse says there's never been a God other than God. There's never going to be a God other than God. He's not going to make any more of them. And there, there is no others. 
list, if you take that with John 1.1, if in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, well, if He's a God, He's got to be the God, or He's no God at all. So He's still God. That's exactly what Jesus was communicating as He carried out His ministry. The miracles and the things that He did were establishing who He was, that He's the Son of God. And in the Hebrew mindset, Son of God doesn't just mean a descendant of, it means you share the same nature. If a, if a human has a baby, what is it? It's a human. If a dog has a baby, it's a puppy. It's a dog. If God has a baby, if God has a son, it's God. That's the whole truth behind the virgin birth. That's what's lying there. So Jesus Christ is absolutely God. We know that from many other things. He took authority over the Sabbath day. He took authoritative teaching over the, with the Word of God. He healed the miracles that He did. Remember when the, they brought the guy to Jesus that was lame? And Jesus said, uh, your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus went on and He made a point. He said, let me ask you a question. Which one's easier? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? Well, the answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because I could say your sins are forgiven all day long. Nobody knows if it really happened. There's nothing to substantiate it. But if you say rise up and walk, now it's all on the table. Because either he's going to get up and walk or he's not. Either you have the power to lift him up or you don't. And it's very visible. Well, Jesus said, so that you would know that I have the power to forgive sins. Now I'm saying to the guy, rise up and walk. And he got up and he walked. In other words, Jesus said, I'm going to use his healing to show you something else, that I have the power. See, this is dealing with who am I? What did they say? That's blasphemy, because who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus is saying, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. Now, let me give you a little demonstration to show you who I am. I can forgive sins. I'm God. He was demonstrating that. He never, he never rejected it. You look at the apostles. You look at angels. Every time somebody falls down to worship an angel or one of the apostles, what happens? They tear their clothes. They say, don't you do it. You stand up. I'm just a man. I'm just an angel. I, you know, I'm just a messenger, one of God's servants. Thomas falls down before Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't tear his clothes. Jesus doesn't pick him up. What does Jesus do? In a nutshell, he tells Thomas, you know what? You're right. But you had to see it to believe it. Blessed is everybody that believes it without seeing it. We see the Father, Son. Well, let's get the Holy Spirit up there before we get into that part. The Holy Spirit is God also. Uh, one example of this statement is in, in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Ananias and Sapphira have come there. They, Barnabas sold a, sold a bunch of land and gave all the proceeds of it to the church to help take care of the, the widows and people that were struggling. And so everybody's thinking, man, Barnabas, he's a good guy. And he, he was a good guy. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira wanted everybody to look at them and think the same thing, so they sold some of their land, but they kept back part of the money and only gave part of it, which was fine. But they wanted everybody to think they gave all of it. So they took it before the apostles and they said, look, here, here's all the money that we gave that we got from selling this land. Well, the apostles said, the land was yours. You didn't have to sell it at all. Even once you sold it, you could have kept all the money and it's completely within your rights. You haven't done anything wrong yet. But you sold it. You said that you gave all of it and it wasn't. And how does, he, how does he word it here? This is what he tells him. It says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So he says, when you're doing this, you're, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. To lie to the Holy Spirit, Peter says, is to lie to God. Why? Because it's Him. It's God. When we look through the Bible, there's, we see this through the New Testament. Who raised Jesus from the dead? You realize you can answer it biblically three ways. There's passages that say that God the Father rose 
his son Jesus from the dead. Jesus claimed that he would raise himself from the dead. And there's passages that attribute that as well. There's also passages that say that the Holy Spirit quickened Jesus from the dead. So the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all given credit for the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the dead. Who did it? And there's other things like that too that we can look at and see that that are attributed to, to multiple or all of the persons of the Godhead, these different acts. We see the creation of the world attributed to God. It's also attributed to Christ. The sustainer of the world, Christ. These are all God activities. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all directly claim to be God. So if God is one, how could you have that? You see, it only makes sense if this, with this idea that we've labeled the Trinity, that there's three persons within this one Godhead. We also see evidence for that Trinity spelled out in some different passages as we get to see them all kind of functioning, working together. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 is one example where Jesus said, told them that all authority was given to him in heaven and earth. They were to go out and make disciples of all nations. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So again, we just see it all functioning as one. Who is God? It is the Trinity. Three in one. It's this triune God. Uh, how we can illustrate it, you know, every, all the illustrations fall short in one way or another. If you try to wrap your mind around it too much, you end up coming down on one error, error on one side or the other. Focusing on the oneness and denying the three or focusing on the three and and denying the oneness. It's better just to recognize that there's some things that are just beyond our grasp and just admire it, worship it. Well, now let's get to the practical application. We're going to run through these rather quickly. But how does this then apply in our life, in in our situation? It does in very handy ways. First of all, is is through redemption. As we look at uh, redemption that we have in Christ, we see that all three members of the Trinity are involved in our redemption. Secondly, we see the image of God expressed. And that expressed as we look back at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, we see expressed in a peculiar way. It says this, So God created man in his own image. And remember, this is right after the verse that we said earlier, Let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created mankind in his own image. And within mankind, what did he make? Male and female, husband and wife. That's part of the image of God. We see three persons in this relationship within the Godhead. And then as he makes mankind in his own image, he makes us the same thing. Unity and diversity. God has a diversity of persons within the unity of God. And our creation is into this married relationship with a unity in the relationship amongst a diversity you have a man and a woman. I was watching a video this week and it talked about, it says there's no place on earth that the image of God is more clearly seen than within that marriage relationship. In fact, some of the uh, systematic theology books that I've been using to, in studying through and preparing for, to, for the messages as we go through this, they've pointed out that they said you could even go so far as to make the point, although the Bible doesn't make the point, that the whole family is structured around the image of God because you have the father and the son and you have within our families, you have the husband and the wife. And then New Testament also compares that husband-wife relationship and father-son relationship in the Godhead. The Bible also teaches that the Holy Spirit comes forth from the father and the son. He says so you could even make the point that the whole family is structured around the image of God with, because we have the husband and wife with the children proceeding from the husband and the wife in the family. But the Bible doesn't reach so far as to make that point, so you've got to be careful. But you see, we're bearing the image of God. As, as we look at the, the structure 
of marriage within our society, it's not cultural. It's theological issue. It, the, the structure is what it is because it mirrors the image of God within our society. We go on from there in our, within our marriage relationships. Because what do we see within our marriage relationships, still based on the image of God, is priority without inferiority. In other words, the structure of that marriage relationship is, is the same as well as the Bible teaches that the man is the head of the home and that the woman is to be in subjection to the man. But it has nothing to do with inferiority. That's what I always hate when the women's lib people start saying, well, then you're, you, know, you have male dominance, male superiority. It's not superiority at all. It's just priority. And that's what as we look at the passage, we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. It says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. The whole point that we're making is that Christ is co-equal with God the Father. So there is no inferiority between Christ and God Christ is subject to the Father, but He's not inferior. And it's the same thing as we look at our relationships within the home. Our marriage relationship is supposed to be the the mirror of God, supposed to show forth the image of God. So just as the head of Christ is God, the head of the wife is the husband. You see, we're supposed to be bringing forth the image of God in our marriage relationship. We're made in His image. Even our structures within society are bearing forth the image of God. So how do we put this in practical use in our life? By striving in our relationships, in our marriages, in our homes, to bear the image of God, to present the image of God to this world that is quickly running away from it. The world for decades has been saying, break down the structure of the home. But do they do that? That's Satan's attempt to break down the image of God. Now our world's gone a step farther. Break down the, the structure of the marriage relationship. It's Satan's attack on the image of God because it represents the image of God. So this has very practical implication in our life. We also see it when we start talking about what is the church. The body of Christ is put together in the image of God as well. And we look in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 in the first six verses like we already read there. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He starts talking about the unity, the unity that we're supposed to have as a church. Why? Because there's one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Because God is one. That's why we're supposed to be one. Jesus prayed before He left in John 17 and said, Father, I want them to be one like we are one. That's why we're supposed to have this unity. And what do we see within the body of Christ? You know what we see? We see unity and diversity. God doesn't give us all the same gifts. If we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4-7, through 7, it says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, for the common good. God's gifted different people in different ways. Lots of different gifts. variety of gifts. But they're all coming from the same Spirit. So he's saying that's exactly what we should be within the body of Christ. We should be at one. We should be one. We should be unified. A unity with a diversity inside of it. One in purpose and function, but different gifts in carrying out those functions. He goes on through the rest of the chapter to, to compare it to a body. And he says, are, are the eyes, the ears, are the toes, hands... They're not all the same part. They have different functions. But it's one body. You're not like everybody else in here? Good. We don't need any more of everybody else in here. We have a diversity of gifts under the same Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.12, a little bit later in that same chapter, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many, though many, are one body, so it is with 
Christ. So you see, we see, we see God. When we're, when we're looking at the Godhead, we see God. Who is He? He's one. He's three persons within that Godhead. How that works, I don't know. I don't even know if I'm going to know in heaven. I might be forever scratching my head on that one. But that's okay. Within Him is three persons. And you know what? That has very practical implications in our life. Because our goal is to be the image of God in this world. To represent accurately the image of God. We need to represent God in our, bear forth His image in our relationships with one another, in our homes, in our marriage relationships, our family relationships. We need to bear the image of God in our church, in the body of Christ, within those relationships. That's what we were created for. And it's there that we find our purpose, which is pretty fitting, isn't it? When you think about it, where do we find our purpose? In God Himself.